Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. In March 1890, The Times published an editorial praising the work of a 24-year-old author. Quote, India has given us an abundance of soldiers and administrators, it said, but she's seldom given us a writer. There's no question, however, that she's done so... She's done this in the person of the author of the numerous short stories and verses of which we give the titles below. They were talking about Rudyard Kipling, in his early 20s, already a prolific and celebrated literary figure. He's best known for his children's works, The Jungle Book and The Just So Stories, but Kipling was a writer of great range who tackled everything from espionage to duty or the fairies that lived at the bottom of his garden. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature. He was born and grew up in India and was a major apologist for the British Empire, if it was run correctly. This made and then perhaps unmade his reputation. With me to discuss the work of Rudyard Kipling, Ajahn Montefiore, Ajahn Montefiore, Professor of 20th Century English Literature at the University of Kent, Howard Booth, Senior Lecturer in English Literature at the University of Manchester, and Daniel Carlin, Winterstoke Professor of English Literature at the University of Bristol. Daniel Carlin, he's probably best known for his children's books, or perhaps as a poet, but can you give us an idea, just to start off with, of the range of his work? Well, it's a a work of extraordinary diversity. Um, It begins with stories and poems about Anglo-Indian life, Uh, but it branches out into almost every genre of um, literature, uh, including um, non-fiction, travel writing, and um, journalism. And it covers almost every area of uh, human experience that Kipling encountered in in 50 years of of literary writing. And he gave voice uh, not just to people but to animals and even machines. There's an extraordinary short story, uh, one of whose heroes are the rivets on a ship. So it's it's a a remarkable, remarkable um, range, and quite a lot of it not explored any longer today, unfortunately. So that's some idea of his range. Um, and also he tended to concentrate on... He wrote three novels, but it was mostly short stories and poems. Yes, the the, the core of the, the literary achievement is is the short story and, and poems, although he never called them poems, he always called them verses. We'll come back to that, yes. because it's interesting that he did that. He was born in British-ruled India in 1865. Can you tell us about that earliest part of his childhood? Well, perhaps the best way of doing it is to read from the posthumously published memoir, uh, Something of Myself, which begins with an invocation to Allah, the dispenser of events, and goes on. My first impression is of daybreak, light and colour, and golden and purple fruits at the level of my shoulder. This would be the memory of early morning walks to the Bombay fruit market with my ayah, a Portuguese Roman Catholic who would pray... I beside her at a wayside cross. Mita, my Hindu bearer, would sometimes go into little Hindu temples, where being below the age of caste, I held his hand and looked at the dimly seen friendly gods. This memoir begins with invocations of Allah, the Roman Catholics and the Hindus, and uh, Kipling came of Protestant Methodist stock. So that gives you some idea of the extraordinary multicultural origin of this writer who we think of as associated with English nationalism. Uh, His first language, as he grew up, was not English. 
It was what he called the, the vernacular um, Hindi. Another little passage from Something of Myself talks about the stories and nursery songs, all unforgotten. These are hi uh, Hindu. We were sent into the dining room after we'd been dressed with a caution, speak English now to papa and mama. So one spoke English, in inverted commas, haltingly translated out of the vernacular idiom that one thought and dreamed in. What was his father doing in India? He was teaching at a, an art college in Bombay, and he later became director of uh, a museum in Lahore, which then becomes famous as the, the House of Wonders or Treasure House in, in Kim. So he was an arts and crafts man, John Lockwood Kipling, and a very important figure in, in Kipling's life, um, t taught his son the, the beauty and value of making things, um, something that Kipling never, never lost. The arts and crafts side of it, he was linked with the pre-Raphaelites, wasn't he? Absolutely. The, um, his, his mother, um, Alice Kipling, was one of four, uh, five um, MacDonald sisters, one of whom married the painter um, Edward Byrne-Jones. So there's a, a strong, there are strong artistic uh, connections with, with that whole kind of phase of, Engl of English culture. So those are the first five or six years, which he looks back on. The word idyllic isn't misplaced there, is it? Absolutely not, right. no. Then uh, he was wrenched, we can say, <laughs> John Montefiore, from uh, idyllic Bombay and sent to a boarding house in Southsea when he was just about six. So he spent the next six years there, and from what he wrote about it later, it was hell. Well, in Something of Myself, he calls it the House of Desolation, which speaks for, him, which speaks for itself. Um, he was he was not quite six um, when he when he left India, and his little, and his sister um, Alice, who was always called Trix, was only three, and the three of them were there for yes six years, and um, it was a very very it was a traumatic experience, and it certainly scarred, it scarred them for life. Well, the man in the boardhouse seems to have been a kindly chap, from what yes. we know. The woman was evangelical, bullying. She thought little boys were full of sin and told lies. And as a result of her treatment, we're told he suffered from hallucinations and even bouts of blindness. It was... You can't get very much worse than that. No, indeed. Um, I mean, I think that it culminated in that. Um, you know, Kipling wrote a very vivid, very bitter story about it, Bar Bar Black Sheep, in which he calls his sister Punch and Judy. And um, it's um, told in, you know, yet there are three bags full, and there's the first bag, the second bag, the third bag, and they get worse and worse and worse. And um, he's regularly beaten. Um, he's, also, um, he's also told he's wicked, he's going to hell... Um, and the things that the things that seems to have saved him were, um, I think, partly the um, attachment between himself and his sister, which never failed, even though his sister was Auntie Rose's favourite and he was the kind of the outcast of back sheep, and his imagination. It sort of threw him on himself. Sort of he describes very vividly um, the games he used to play in the cellar. Is, well, the, well, the tradition was that people who had enough means or in certain positions sent their children back to England to be yes, educated. Yes, they did. But why did they send them back to this lot? I mean, they were well-connected. They had relatives who talked about... What on earth did they send them to an evangelical maniac in South Sea boarding house? Well, they didn't know she was an evangelical maniac. And um, his mother seems... Alice Kipling seems to have not wanted him to stay with any of her brothers and sisters. He, she said it could have led to complications. What did she mean? 
Um, we don't know, but um, at Georgie Byrne-Jones and Uncle Ned Byrne-Jones were having their marital problems. You can see why um, they why he might think that. And um, when she had taken the children over, um, when Ruddy was about two and a half, I think when uh, when Trix was was born at home, wasn't she? Um, Ruddy had been an obstreperous two-year-old, and the um, all the relatives had said what a pain in the neck he was, how sort of self-willed, how arrogant, and so on. And um, I think she thought that, you know, maybe her relatives wouldn't like them. And she wanted to be... that There was a sort of family tradition of being fiercely independent. So I suppose um, that's, that's what she decided. So this beaten and abused boy, at the age of about 12 or 13, went to a minor public school, that's what you call these things, Westwood Ho, for a few years, where it seems things seemed to have got a bit better. He wrote and edited the school magazine, but soon left at 17 and went straight back to India. Yes. Well, things went a lot better for him at school, actually. He had been restored to his parents. He'd been taken away from bullying and abuse. Um, and it was a tough school, but it suited him. He made friends. Um, a thing that is very striking about something about for myself is that there don't seem to have been any playmates whatsoever, except for his cousins, the Byrne Joneses, the sort of the month the month at Christmas. But otherwise, there were no friends. And at schools, he did make friends, and he discovered Browning. That was a big discovery. And he went back to India and started work. And he went a seven-year apprenticeship as a journalist, which vitally affected the rest of his work. Absolutely, yes. And he was going back to sort of the original paradise, but as a, um, but of course it wasn't paradise. And also, you know, people always say he was 16 going on 17. It has struck me that his contemporaries would be going to sixth form and then to university. He was that kind of age, um, you know, impressionable. And um, he was back um, in this place, which was also strange, place of, full of sun, colour, strange smells foreign languages, being ruled by a, um, by a small English community of which he was one. Um, he was working very, very hard as a journalist, but it meant that he got out and about everywhere. Howard Booth, uh, as Jan said, he got out and about everywhere, and these fed into the early stories. Um, can you tell, give us some idea of, the, uh, of when he started those stories and, uh, and what the range of them was, even at that early stage? Yes, he's publishing creative works in the Civil and Military Gazette. They didn't only take news, but many of them emerged out of the stories that were finding their way into the newspaper because it didn't only contain original reporting. It acted as a kind of digest of other newspapers. And the initial work, Short Stories, Poems, is much more heterogeneous than perhaps the later work. Kipling isn't looking so much to impose meanings uh, on that material. And one can just uh, quickly bring out three kinds of story. Uh, one, stories on Anglo-Indian moors, uh, on the way people behaved, particularly uh, the sexual moors of Anglo-India. Um, another set of stories are around soldiers, particularly ordinary soldiers. One of the things that uh, Kipling is credited with is starting to give attention to the ordinary British soldier, the Tommy Atkins figure, in both poetry... But it's also, Tommy this, it's Tommy that, yeah. Yes, um, uh, both in um, poetry but also in short stories. And he invents three uh, ordinary so uh, soldiers... Um, 
um, or Veni uh, or Thoris um, and uh, Leroyd, who become these stocks with three figures who feature in many of his stories. Um, so the ordinary soldier. Um, and then the third uh, category is that the young Kipling who um, found the hot weather in Lahore very difficult every Anglo-Indian uh, did. There was a lot of disease and illness. It was quite a risky place for Anglo-Indians to be. And his way of dealing with this was to go out in the night and make these night prowls of Lahore. And he um, became aware of the uh, prostitutes in Lahore, the drug-taking in Lahore, and that finds its way into short stories around uh, haunting, around uh, various mental states that also characterise some of these very famous early short stories. Are we talking at this time of him uh, uh, hardening an attitude, an attitude towards the colonial experience, towards the British Empire? If so, can you just... Yes, I think in his writing it's more open at this point, and the short stories were always more open. But Kipling did inherit what one might call the family politics, which is associated in particular with, with, with Lockwood Kipling and widely held in Anglo-India, which held the um, politicians back home as failing to really understand uh, India and what was needed to keep... Uh, India under control and therefore being uh, very conservative. And we have to remember these are the years after the Indian mutiny, as Kipling would have known it, the uh, Indian uprising, we'd call it now. Um, and the Anglo-Indians were always fearful and their attitudes towards uh, Indians hardened in those years after the mutiny. Is it possible to summarise this young man we're talking about before the Times was written, the editorial even, uh, he's establishing himself, he's in his late teens, early 20s, a rapid production of short stories. And Is it possible to crystallise his view of the British... I know it's complicated, so it's maybe mm. a stupid question, but if yes. you can, that'd be great. Well, I think a good way to do this is through the short story, The Man Who Would Be King, because that captures um, his particular take, I think, in, in these years. And on the one hand, that short story um, is very interested in the initiative of its two main figures, Daniel Travert and Peachy Carnahan, who go from uh, India north to Kafiristan, up in the mountains of Afghanistan, and seek to establish this kingdom there. But that attempt is undone when Travert, the would-be king, uh, is exposed. They've been pretending to be gods, but when the woman he wants to take as his wife bites him and he bleeds, it's revealed that he's human and their effort to establish this kingdom collapses. And the opposition that sets up is Kipling's interest in initiative, the person not being bound by stifling conventions and bureaucracy. But there's another side as well, which is that Kipling always held the importance of the law, of doing things within bounds, within convention. And that tension between the talented individual and order and, 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 and codes and being within the law is very important to Kipling. Daniel Carlin, um, in 1889, still a very young man, Kipling moved to London, deliberately, as I understand it, to build his reputation as a writer. Goodness knows it. The time they'd given him a heck of a send-off. But when he came to London, he wanted to be more than a, uh, a 
Taste of the Orient. He wanted to be in the mainstream, and he became friends with Henry James, who admired him a great deal, and as I understand it, Conan Doyle, and so on. But can you give us a more rounded view of what was going on in literary London and how he got to be so central a part of it so quickly? Well, Kipling arrives in London at a kind of pivotal moment in um, English-British literary culture because, it's the, in, in a sense, it's the end of an era. Browning has died in 1889. Tennyson's going to die in 1892. So these, these great Victorian um, sages and, and prophets, are, are that, that generation is, is passing away. There's a new ferment. Oscar Wilde is in his pomp, and it's Wilde who... Uh, also writes about plain tales from the hills, the, the collection of short stories. As one turns over the pages of his plain tales from the hills, one feels as if one were seated under a palm tree, reading life by superb flashes of vulgarity. And K- Kipling caught a, a mood, a mood for for change, for the for the exotic, for the for the new, uh, in in literary London. It's a uh, um, also associated with an explosion of new. Um, journals and uh, forms of, of publication. So he arrives at, uh, you know, he had, and this is, again he says in something of myself, he had tremendous luck. He arrived at, you know, in the in the nick of a particular uh, particular moment, when the initial taste for his exotic writing could then be used as a kind of platform for building a, a, a much wider, larger literary career. And I think it's also um, important to say that he'd had that ambition from the beginning. That's to say that, that he was never going to be a writer content with simply having a kind of Anglo-Indian reputation. It's a much uh, fiercer, more determined drive toward, towards um, literary achievement. John Montefiore, can we, can we develop that a little bit? He did come over determined to make his reputation as a as writer on what he saw as the, the world scene centred on London, uh, and whether he was right, there was something in that, and he, and he did it. Now, can you give us some uh, idea of how he said about it and who, who helped him to succeed? Um, he, was, he joined clubs. Um, he, was ele- he was elected to the Savile Club, I mean, he describes that in something of myself, which was in a sort of enormously important literary centre. So, sort of, Sir Walter Besant, um, Edward um, Edmund Goss, um, influential people like that, and Andrew Lang. Of course, he was a member of the Savile, and Lang was one of Kipling's earliest reviewers. So, um, so he did that. Um, he also, and this is very characteristic, Kipling preserved a sort of fierce independence. He sort of he lived an economical bachelor life just off Charing Cross Station, um, and he says that he lived on sausage and mash until his sort of um, big payments started to come in. Um, he spent a lot of time at the music halls. He was kind he of fed into the barrack room ballads and so on. Oh, very much so. Yes, yes. yes, yes. And then the barrack room ballads became part of the music halls. They did. <laughs> <laughs> they did indeed. Yes. And um, so he's there, but. Let's go on a bit. I mean, he, Henry James wasn't wasn't easy to charm and get an admirer, but Kipling managed to do both. Was yes, that, he was seems that, whose initiative was that? His or Henry James? Do you know? I don't know that one. Oh, he he would have been introduced. To, I think he was introduced to James by by um, Walter Besant, and um, James said of Kipling quite quite soon after he'd met him. Um, uh, he strikes me personally as the most complete man of genius, and then a wonderful Jamesian. 
parenthesis, as distinct from fine intelligence that I have ever known. <laughs> and that's a very shrewd kind of uh, assessment, and I think... Um, he was full of that, wasn't he? Would, yes. would you say something like, with a mind so fine that no yes. idea violated yes. it? Um, <laughs> but, but there is a, a great truth there that, that, he is, that, that James saw that he was a... Com- and, to, and to be fair, uh, Kipling loved James. He has a wonderful comment about him. Someone sent him a book of uh, sort of history of the American short story, and he wrote back to the author of this book saying that he hadn't given enough attention to Henry James. He is head and shoulders, the biggest of them all, and will in the end be found to be perhaps the most enduring influence. And it's a very strange thought that the influence of James on Kipling's short stories is is palpable in some of the... Yes, I mean, um, Kipling pays him a direct tribute, doesn't he, in that very charming book, The Jainites, which is about a bunch of soldiers who all read Jane Austen. And one of them, a rather drunk, addresses the other... And the others, and says that they saying that Jane had no lawful issue. What a what what a shame that was. He did. She did have lawful issue. Her son was one Ennery James. <laughs> but let's just go Quite on. Just, let's just finish this. Uh, don't take a minute to. But finish this. Uh, settling himself and setting himself as a very important person among brilliant people who thought themselves and were told that they were brilliant people and influential people in the London literary metropolis. What Did anything clinch it or have we said enough about it? Um, he was sort of eagerly sought by editors of all the leading journals. Yeah. Um, the one that he seems to have been particularly closest to and sort of eager to associate himself with was um, W.E. Henley of the National Observer. Uh, Observer. That is where he published Danny Diva, which had the, prof- the, the Scottish the professor saying, here's literature, here's mm. literature. Um, and um, at the same time, he rather distanced himself from the literary world. and He was a bit wary of his instant fame. He sort of, and um, he says that very explicitly in Something of Myself, that he didn't trust reviews, he didn't trust reviewers. Howard Booth, it might be extraordinary for our listeners so used are they to people making literary reputations through novels and to a certain extent through poetry obviously mm-hmm. but it was short stories the short story, there was the short story that, that, that clinched his reputation and they came out in, in scores yes particularly in the uh, early period <coughs> that, that's uh, absolutely right Kipling uh, really is absolutely um, at the right time for his talents, really, because the literary scene was shifting from the serial publication of novels. Dickens. Dickens, yes. um, Towards readers wanting the short story. Literary uh, text they could read at one sitting or close to it. And um, that was changing the the pecking order of, of literary genres. But also it allowed Kipling to put other changes uh, Jan's mentioned Walter Besant. Soon after Kipling uh, arrived, he became involved with the Society of Authors and indeed was on its council. And the Society of Authors was campaigning for copyright so that authors were not undercut by pirate editions of their uh, work. And Kipling comes at the right time because he's able to make copyright work for him. He has difficulties with the law and with pirate editions for for many decades to come but through uh, active um, uh, use of of agents and so on he's able to um, 
secure a continual revenue stream from his past publications, which means that he can uh, work on these short stories, polish short stories in a considered way. Uh, and that's uh, different from the author who has to keep writing because his last text is no longer earning him any money. Yeah, but he can publish in England, one fee, publish in a periodical, as it were, yes. a periodical in India, or in America, another fee, another fee, another fee, publish in America, another fee. So he, by that way, he becomes, he becomes an extremely rich uh, yes. author, apart from being a yes. very famous and, author. And you've then got collections, and then you've got the various collected editions of his uh, work, uh, which then run throughout his life. So, yes, Kipling is able to buy, eventually, a... a a country home which leaves the National Trust and set his by another one, Wimple Hold in Cambridgeshire for his, his daughter. It's difficult to think of any other canonical author who's made as much money from literature as Kipling. Yeah. Can we uh, come step back a little in this, uh, in this story, John Montefiore? He, in 1892, he married an American woman and moved to Vermont, and for a while people thought he was going to become an American citizen, certainly. He describes those as the happiest days of his life. He wrote both volumes of the Jungle Book. Um, what attracted him about America? Well, his closest friend was um, what would have been his... Walcott Ballestier, who would have been his brother-in-law had he lived. So he married his best friend's sister. Um, and he liked the... He liked a great deal about America. He liked its openness. He liked its um, he liked its mixture of peoples. Um, he was a tremendous admirer of Mark Twain, um, and also of comic American writers like Bret Hart, um, and um, Bret Hart and, and lesser-known ones like Vance Brightman, who wrote kind of dialect. Um, and he loved the country. I mean, his letter the letters that he lo writes from Vermont. Um, in his honeymoon yet theirs are just sort of ecstatic and he does the most wonderful word pictures of... Um, you mean the countryside? Of the countryside, yes. Yeah. Yes. And uh, what's one thing that attracted him, Thur? You, you might want to step in on this as well, uh, Daniel. The fact that it was a building country, it was to do with... He, he loved craft. In, he did it in his work. He loved crafts, as, yeah. as we mentioned that earlier. But he wrote about... Uh, Men who did work and machines, as you say, wrote a poem about the machine. One, one of the, and it was one yeah. of the few people who's ever really done that yeah. with power and conviction. And it, it yeah. took yeah. the fancy. I mean, he hit the hit the mood yeah. of the time, building things, making things, things that worked and really changed yeah. life. He, he loved um, he loved the the doers more than the thinkers. And one of the great American books that he wrote is a, a children's story, Captain's Courageous which is the, the title of which comes from an old um, poem about Elizabethan adventurers, English Elizabethan adventurers. But, but that sense, that spirit of adventure and expansion has now, belongs now to, to America. But he's also very uh, clear-sighted. He wasn't um, c completely swept away. He saw other things in America. He saw the tendency of democracy towards certain kinds of, of um, corruption and demagoguery. So there's a dark side to the American experience as well as a, a joyful and celebratory one. Both those things come in to, to, the, to the writing. Very much so. And he felt that there was violence in America. Um, and um, he, he felt that very strongly, that, um, that there was a lawlessness about American life that he didn't like. It's more in America now at this stage, uh, Howard Booth, that he starts getting interested... <coughs> Excuse me. 
in politics. Mm. It's a Venezuela mm. issue, isn't it? Yes, the, there is a, a border dispute between uh, the British uh, Guiana and, and, and Venezuela in which America becomes involved against the British. But Kipling's whole effort is actually the other way, to try and find a, a common cause between this emerging power, America, and the British uh, Empire. Because in America at this point, you had two competing narratives. Isolationism, which of course is to remain a strong tendency through into the uh, 20th century, but also expansionism. And Kipling becomes very friendly with uh, Theodore Roosevelt, yet president, but uh, a growing force in, in America, on the side of expansionism. And um, as the 1890s go on, the United States fights a war with Spain in 1898, and it is starting to become a country with, for want of a better word, it didn't, didn't like to apply it to itself, colonies. And um, the difficulty for Kipling was that many Americans still saw themselves as defined against the British because of their history, because of uh, their own efforts to gain independence from Britain. But Kipling wanted to establish uh, an Anglo-Saxon um, renewed empire. And the other key thing that's happening in the 1890s, the late 1890s, is that Germany is starting to build up its navy is a huge threat to the British Empire, which depends on naval superiority. So this is not a kind of triumphalist move. It's also, as so often with Kipling's imperialism, an, an anxious um, move as well. A, now, this is where, in a sense, there's a nub point here, Daniel Carling. He's bringing these views into his verse and stories, which are phenomenally successful. We can't say that often enough, because one poem alone... Uh, Earned him one poem, earned him the equivalent of seven million pounds, which he gave to the War Office, um, the absent-minded beggar that was. For instance, that just in monetary terms, but still, it's an indication of how popular it was. Um, but he's using stuff for his political views, and he's getting, he's putting together a feeling of not so much Anglo-Saxon superiority, but an Anglo-Saxon responsibility. The white man's burden can be put that way. And he wants mm -hmm. to bring the Americans into that, as it were, plot that he's, he's got in his mind. Is there something in that? Uh, absolutely there is. But it, it's also true to say that Kipling takes, takes the long view of, of these matters, so that one of the things that fascinated him was the rise and fall of empire. And he knows in his bones that the British Empire, like all other empires won't last. And Recessional, the great poem that he, that he published yeah. on the occasion of the Diamond Jubilee, is about that, um, that uncomfortable fact. So there's both the, the, the contemporary sense that something good, something um, valuable can be made of the British Empire and that it can be associated with the expansion of, of, of America. But you have to see that within this long uh, time, the, the deep time, if you like, of imperial um, rise and, and, and decline. But he's using his poems to, I think the correct word would be to propagate these views. Absolutely. And, and, and poetry, uh, because it's more economical, it's pithier, uh, it gets published in newspapers, it's more widely circulated, and it's sung as well. It gets turned into, into yeah. song and into so verse. It, th there's yeah. a sense of this which is very much for common people he's writing for. Absolutely. And much more yeah. one of the few poets yeah. who's on, every, on most yeah. soldiers' tongues. Both uh, other guys want to get John first and then... No, I wanted to say that I absolutely agree with 
all that, 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 that you have said, but that um, Kipling's love for the British Empire, for the rule of law, his idealising of it, is, I think it's sort of, it's the other side of his sense of, as you say, deep time. One of the poems he wrote in Puck says, Cities and thrones and powers stand in time's eye almost as long as flowers which daily die. And he always sees the sort of the works of man in relation to, as, as Danny says, Daniel says, deep time. And yet he, and he knows they won't last. He always knows they won't last. The uh, point I, I wanted to, to make is, is, is about this idea of being writing for ordinary people. Of course, the people who are excluded here are the people who are to be ruled and those who aren't um, white. And, and so Kipling is depending on uh, Victorian race theory, on notions that... Uh, certain people had the attributes and, in Kipling's view, had the responsibility to rule others who were intrinsically not as um, developed. And so the poem, The White Man's Burden, has this famous riposte from Gandhi, who says that while Kipling talks about the white man's burden, it was actually the white man's yoke on colonial peoples. Uh, he's, uh, his, his daughter... One of his daughters died um, of the flu, and he, he was des made desolate by that. But I'd like to move on to the response to the outbreak of events in the First World War, because that brings a lot of things together, including, as you said, he's beginning to warn people in the 1890s, watch out for Germany, partly because he thinks they're a threat, and partly because he thinks they're a threat to the British Empire. Nobody's much listening, but he hammers away at that for about 13 or 14 years. Jan, do you want to say something? No, about? and he also tries very hard to get England to introduce national service. Um, and he, um, and well, considering he the poverty-stricken forces we had in 1914, he was right, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. he, he was in South Africa during the uh, Boer War and particularly identified the weakness of, of, of the forces and thought that the empire was really... Uh, under threat because the politicians back home were not prepared to take the decisions that would protect the empire. So there's a curious sense in which the empire is being held up by people who are, who are maintaining it in the field and particularly by the common soldiers who are maintaining it in the field and they're doing it with, with a robustious, complex, uh, funny... But you, they don't feel like oppressors, but they, they, they have in, innately a feeling of superiority. And this goes back, really, to the barracroom ballads and to the giving voice to the common soldier, and that goes forward into the writing about the, the, the First World War. So when you go back to barracroom ballads, and uh, he uses this really wonderful metaphor, this is the soldier speaking, Tommy Atkins saying, I went into a theatre as sober as could be. They gave a drunk civilian room, but hadn't none for me. They sent me to the gallery or round the musicals, but when it comes to fighting, Lord, they'll shove me in the stalls. It's Tommy this. So, Tommy this and Tommy that. Tommy wait outside, but it's special train for Atkins when the trooper's on the tide. And it's that, that sense of the... <laughs> but but it, it's partly about giving... He was the first, the first writer, the first poet to give a voice to these... Uh, to, the, to these people, when the First World War c comes comes around, of course there is a, um, a very malign myth which is circulating that, that Kipling, as it were, consciously and deliberately sacrificed his own son by by 
you know, forcing him to join up or, or manoeuvring it so that he could join up, which is absolutely un, untrue. But what is true is that his son, John Kipling, enlisted and was killed at the Battle of Luce in 1915. Kipling therefore becomes not just a poet of the war, but a poet of the, the pity of war, the casualties of, of, of war. And, and, and it's interesting that his poems have been neglected in celebration of war films recently, and, and some of them are very fine. They are, they are, Gethsemane, I mean, for instance. Yeah, I think yeah. Gethsemane is the, one of the greatest of all the First World War poems. But there are also... Because I mean, he, of this, yeah. we haven't yeah. watched that. I just want to get some idea in, inside the answer that, that, we, that you're going to... or are going to give it in the next year, that this ideas uh, contaminated the work in some way and that it is perhaps possible to peel them away and see what the work as it is because they, they, they don't... They, yeah. they don't, they're not a good match sometimes, are they? Well, I, I think I can answer, if, if you'll forgive me for doing this allegorically, uh, that there's a, one of the stories, the Just So stories, is about, um, uh, called the crab who played with the sea, and it's uh, Po-Ama, po is the, the great, the giant crab, who refuses to cooperate with the lord of creation, won't, won't do as he's told. And he has this tremendous hard shell that protects uh, protects his kind of interior self. But once every year he has to shed that shell and become vulnerable and he's reminded that, that he's a, a vulnerable. Now Kipling, that's what Kipling is like. The politics, the um, the race theory, uh, some of it are unendurably horrible. But it's, it is like a hard shell. When you, you mm. crack that shell and you, you get, get inside, it's a completely different picture. Can I... Um Howard, he, in 1915, he sat on the War Memorials Commission and was very influential there. Yes. Um, it's a little, little later. It's, it's 1917. John dies in 1915, and Fabian Ware is moving to set up the Imperial War Graves Commission, or became the Imperial War Graves Commission. And Kipling becomes very involved with this as its literary advisor. Other people, Lutyens, Gertrude other aspects. But and What did you contribute that was important? Well, the, uh, he was involved in all the inscriptions, all the cemeteries um, uh, until his death. Things like uh, Their Name Liveth uh, Forevermore, that was Kipling's choice. Other authors suggested different things. J.M. Barry suggested All's Well, which would make a visit to a First World War cemetery very different. Um, and uh, he was um, really... Um, and another important thing, sorry to rush no, you, but I'm going to... Yes. Um, that he insisted that their name. He insisted that they were listed not as officers first in yes. order of merit, but they were listed in alphabetical Abs order, whoever they were. And this is probably the first time that yes. the the British working class have had their names in public print and, it and was different, in stone, yeah. uh, different religions. So he wasn't in favour of just crucifixes. And there was a, a personal investment here. Clearly, he was very strongly involved in the idea that the names of the missing should be listed yeah. because John's body was never found. Yeah. Jan, he's, he's seen as a lifetime establishment figure. Would you accept that? How did he see himself? He saw himself as his own man, and he was his own man. I mean, he was he was conservative, he was a patriot, but he did not hesitate to um, has, to attack the government even in the middle of the war. Um, he was he wrote one of his best war poems is Mesopotamia, nineteen seventeen, which is about the Mesopotamia campaign. What it, um, is, what is in present-day Iraq. It was a disaster. And he denounced um, the generals, um, and but not, not only the generals, but also the cabinet, um, the idle-minded overlings. Um, Shall we only threaten and be angry for an hour? 
when the storm is ended shall we find how softly but how swiftly they have sidled back to power by the favour and contrivance of their kind. Still Brings going. down the century, doesn't it, really? Yeah. Another thing that's happening is that he is a... He accepts the Nobel Prize, but even though he's friend, the king offers him the order of merit, he declines that to the king's chagrin. He won't have a knighthood and so on. Uh, but again... After the war, he's, he's on to Hitler right away. And from the end of the 1920s, he's saying, don't, or early 30s, don't yeah. trust this. And partly because he was so anti-German after the First World War, people tend to ignore him. But again, he was on to something. Yes, I mean, he, he saw the rise of, of Nazism as a direct consequence of the weakness of the post-war settlement uh, in, 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 in his eyes. And he did, one of the very last poems that he wrote, the the storm cone is a, a warning of the the coming, uh, the, the coming um, uh, cataclysm, and um, there's a a sense in which uh, right right in, un, until the end, really the hatred of of Germany, which does become pathological, is mixed with a very sharp, acute political sense of where Germany was headed in the late 1920s and, and 1930s. But it did make it very difficult for his voice to be listened to in, in, those, in those final years. Can I briefly ask you, and you have to be very brief, I'm obviously sorry, we could go on for the rest of the day, but still, where is his reputation now? Starting with you, Joan. Um, I think, sort of increasingly, he's admired as the great writer that he was. Um, particularly, I you think... You think the stigma which it became of being a supporter of British Empire has faded? Um, I think it's still there, but Kipling was, always was and always will be a contradictory figure. Um, and he was also... He will be remembered as the, for Kim. Yes, I, I think what he lays down for the future of Indian writing in English, and of course a lot of Indian writing is not in English, um, is the idea of a multiple, plural, attractive um, uh, India rather than just one narrative, say a Hindu one or a Muslim one or a regional one. And that's yeah. to have a big influence on the future of Indian writing. I'm afraid we have to go. I'm awfully sorry. Um, thank you very much, Howard Booth, Daniel Carlin and Jan Matafiori. We're back next week with the Haitian Revolution. Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. We didn't talk about his involvement with the Masons. Yes. Uh, he became a Freemason. In, uh, uh, was significant? It was significant more because of what it symbolised than because of what it was. It symbolised this passion he had for if you think about the, the, the south, whole South Sea trauma which is a trauma of separation and then not belonging so what the Masons offer you is a kind of surrogate community and you think of and all his life he was interested in, in stories of adoption, people who were adopted mm -hmm. into... Oh, what we never got around right to was the idea of him calling it verse and not poem. Yes. I wish we had, which yes. T.S. Eliot picked that's, up that's, on. That's and in Eliot. an admiring piece about uh, it. Absolutely. Yeah. In, in, in a uh, choice of Kipling's mm -hmm. verse in 1941. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I, I why think do you think that was? Mm -hmm. why, did he, why did he want to insist on calling it verse? Yeah. Do you have any idea? <sighs> Um, well, partly because he did write an awful lot of light verse and parodies and things like that. But I think also because he's one of the very few poets that I know of 
who never writes in his, almost never writes in his own person. Yes. Yeah. He's always um, he's he's Tommy's voice. Yeah. Um, or he's a galley slave, or uh, he's we. Yeah. I think it's also, it is a reaction against that whole late 19th century yeah. idea of poetry as mm. something kind of mm. very um, highly aesthetic and... And, mm. uh, and elitist and special, yeah. And uh, he has a wonderful comment on the absent-minded beggar. He says, yeah. I wrote some verses which, which had, I think he has had oomph, he didn't, doesn't use the word oomph, something like that, but lacked, quote, poetry, mm. he says, and he's using that term in inverted commas in a, in a kind of uh, ironic um, way. That's but, I mean, a that, term that sold 250,000 copies. In, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it was, and, but not only that, it was, a, it was an extraordinary phenomenon. I mean, it got reprinted on, on sort of tea cloths and, and, um, and, and kind of <laughs> handkerchiefs and um, posters. And it was that's just the a, way. I mean, it was a cultural phenomenon. should give their eye teeth for that, wouldn't yeah. they, to be on a tea cloth? Mm. And Kipling would have been fascinated by modern media I mean, I know it's, it's very vulgar to make these... But, I mean, he would have been tweeting. He would have been, you know, doing all those things. The, the 140 characters, that would have suited him down to the ground. <laughs> now, we didn't talk about his style either, which is yeah. a bit like Hemingway. He used the journalism yes. to hammer out yeah. a very... And that's why concise. that seven years' apprenticeship yeah. really trained him in how to write with economy and mm. kind of yes. directness. Yes, writing short. Yeah. And, and really, he only had 1,200 words for the first... Plain Tales from the Hills. It's yes. very short for yes. a short story. Really? Yes. Yeah. That was the limit he was writing to. Mm. It's the versatility, isn't it, that he has absolutely no fear as a writer, setting a short story in, in any period, assuming all these different voices mm. in the poetry. Um, of all uh, writers in English, he's, he's one of the, the least fearful. He's never somebody who goes, yes, I'd like that idea, but technically yeah. it would be too, but, too uh, difficult. I sometimes think of him as a kind of also as a kind of jobbing poet, as though you had a subject would come along and knock on his door and say, can you write a poem about me? He said, yep, I can do that. Mm. You know. Luke's just come in. Hello. There is our producer this week. There are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio4.